Hello again. Okay. Good morning, beloved. You having a good morning, church? Blessed and highly favored, amen? I got a question for you. How many of you have yet realized that I have now been here with you for more than a whole year? It's true. As of mid-February, it's been a whole year which means I am not the new guy anymore. <laughs> We've got a whole new new guy now, amen? <laughs> well, accordingly, that's, that's kind of the impetus behind this message. Like any well-run organization, I would like us to do a bit of self-assessing today, like, a, like an annual review of sorts. I'd like to think about where we are now, where we have come since last year, and where we plan to go from here. So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll begin. But before we start, I want to welcome those who are tuning in on the radio. Thank you for tuning in to KFHL. If you do not know me out there in Radio Land, my name is Stephen Hicks. I am the associate pastor here at the Hillcrest Seventh-day Adventist Church. We are located at 2600 Kenwood Road. And we are having a great time this morning. The only way it could be better is if you were here with us in person. So we're inviting you to come and join us in the future. Uh, God bless you out there as the Lord is blessing us as well. So friends, let us pray. <clears throat> our Father God in heaven, we ask that you would be with us to comfort our hearts, but also open our hearts. Help us be honest with ourselves as to the accomplishments we have, have, have realized the accomplishments that are still in the future, and the road that you are traveling with us. Bless us accordingly. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, it is not lightly. Had those at work? They're not always so fun, right? I mean, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. I'm hoping we'll get a little bit of both. The scripture tells us, the, the scripture verse that we read, I only had chosen through verse 41 there, but the, the scripture tells us to, to let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. So in other words, to properly seek after the Lord, there must be an examination of our ways. That's what we're doing today. And rightly executed, that examination should result in praise and worship of God. Now, I am under the impression that this is a group that is interested in seeking after the Lord. Am I correct in that impression, beloved? Okay, I thought so. Then let me speak plainly. When I arrived here one year ago, a little more than a year ago, many of you spent the bulk of my first two months here telling me 
all about what had happened here over the year or two prior and whose fault you thought it was. And depending on who was talking to me, the, the party at fault was always someone different. That was a heavy burden you guys laid on me, let me tell you. <laughs> Especially when then the senior pastor disappeared and I didn't get a replacement. That was a heavy burden. <laughs> and I resolved early on to making healing the biggest prayer that I had for this church. And since that time, I have brought messages that the Lord has put on my heart throughout the year, each one with the purposes of challenging our thinking, broadening our perspective or our understanding, fostering discussion among us, and ultimately generating love by the grace of God. That was the point. And to me, what has happened among us. I'm here to give us good news today. I'm here to say that we have been largely successful in the goals that I envision for us, the goals I know we've all been working very hard to achieve. Largely successful. Now, I don't pretend that I am responsible for any of those positive changes. I am really just navigating my way through this conundrum of life, just like all the rest of you. I'm following after the Lord the best way that He has allowed me to by His grace. If, in fact, I have been a positive force here, I'll tell you, it may have been an accident. I refuse to take any such glory, and any glory that does exist needs to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I mention all of this because, as I, as I said earlier, my assessment of this church is that we have come a long way in a year. The frequency and the severity of the grumblings have decreased greatly. The level of cooperation is objectively better now. And there appears to me to be a greater sense of peace and love now, generally speaking. Now, I do not mean to imply that we have arrived, that we've got it all exactly right and perfect. Because, despite the good news, the standard that God is calling us to is that which we find in Philippians 2.3, to let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's a really, really big standard. There would be no dissensions of any kind, here or anywhere else, if we all considered everyone else as better than ourselves. Rather than trying to silence or outmaneuver each other, we would be eager to discover what we could learn through better communication. And ultimately, the bottom line is, if we are not ready to die for any and every person in this room, then we have more of the road to travel to get to God. Amen. Okay? Let's not make the mistake of thinking we've got it all together, we're perfect now. No, no, there's always more room to travel to, towards God. Now, I am not here today to scold you, but rather to bless you and encourage you on this road we're traveling together. And let me, let me illustrate a bit. Here's what I mean. Several years ago, a sister in Christ came to me 
after a class that I was leading, and if I remember correctly, it was a book of Esther that we were studying. She was a simple woman. She had the purest heart that you can imagine. And she had a lot of love for God. But her understanding of God was not that great. And so she came to me after the class distressed and and almost apologetic that she wasn't following along like everybody else was. She believed that she was missing some sort of experience with God by not comprehending the scriptures the way, you know, I do and the way the other people in the class were. And she was really distressed by this. So I told her at a quick moment of prayer, and I told her, I told her this, sister, the more questions you have now, the greater an opportunity you will have to sit at the feet of God in the kingdom and learn from him directly. Let me tell you, that woman just, just just about cried with joy. You see, I do not believe that it is a negative thing to realize our need for God. If we fall short of his standard in some regard, that just simply means that we are realizing an opportunity to draw near to Christ and to rely on him to sanctify us farther. Right? I don't see this as a negative thing. I never get up here to point fingers to place blame, to sow disharmony. I don't see imperfection as failure. I only see opportunities to draw closer to God. And so please, let's keep doing what we've been doing with each other. We're doing the right thing. Let's not go backwards, but always forwards. Let us not divide each other into groups, right? Friends and enemies, or whatever else you want to divide us by. Let's not give up on each other. Let us not fall into the fatal trap of thinking that somehow we are better than any or everyone else in this room. Or even that we are better than those among us who don't attend worship anymore. Everyone here has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone here desperately needs God's love and grace. And no one is any closer to heaven than anyone else because each one of us is dependent upon Jesus to get us there. Without Jesus, none of us are getting there. That means, regardless of who we are, we are all in this together. The old, the young, the rich, the poor, the conservative, the liberal, the male, the female, the white, the black, the everything in between, the born in the faith, the convert to the faith, the native Californian, the transplant to Bakersfield, the salaried, the self-employed, the hourly, the criminal, the free, the investor, the farmer, the builder, the driller, the educator, the pastor. There's no difference. We are all in this together. And there is no difference for those of us in pain. Those of us in need. Church, here at Hillcrest, we love our school. We love evangelism. We love this building and our beautiful campus here. We love feeding the homeless 
and studying the Word of God and serving our community, and we do these things well. But today we're self-assessing, right? Examining our ways. We don't just want to congratulate ourselves, but also think, how can we improve? How can we do better in the year to come? And did you know that there are those among us who are hurting? That's what I want us to do better in the year to come. Did you know that there are problems represented in this very room right now? We have lots of passion for reaching those outside of these walls. Do we have the same level of passion to reach those inside these walls? Now, several of you have come to me over the last year seeking advice, seeking counseling, seeking Bible study for your various problems. And I have found amongst those who have come to me that there is generally uh, a really strong reluctance to share their struggles with the brethren in the church. I know not all of us suffer from this. Many of us are very open, but not all of us are. And if you're fearful to share with the brethren, then you're not going to share with the brethren. You come and privately talk to the pastor, right? So if you don't see this problem, I understand, but I see this problem. To some extent, it is understandable and normal for church members to not want to broadcast, you know, what they're, what they're struggling with. People do not like advertising weakness and struggle, so it makes sense especially in an environment where standards and victory are so highly prized and frequently discussed. It's, it's actually very logical that there would be some reluctance. But it does present two problems that I believe we have to reckon with. The first problem is that the model of secrecy and fear towards the brethren is not biblical. And it's just about as far from the operation of the ancient church as we could possibly be. It's like the exact opposite of how the ancient church was. And the second problem is that the level of reluctance here, what I'm, what I'm describing, the level of not wanting to share with each other is at least, at least as great as it is in any other church. Possibly greater. Now, I'm not supposed to try to crawl into people's hearts and assign the motives, so it's not what I'm doing. But to me, from my perspective, it almost seems like fear. Like we're afraid to be honest with each other, afraid to admit weakness, afraid to ask for help. Now, again, that's not true with 100% of you 100% of the time. But you got to trust me, there is pain in this room that is afraid to admit itself to the church at large. So I want to take these problems apart. Let's consider the very first one. Problem number one, it is not biblical to shy away from your fellow believers, nor to withhold from them your struggles and your fears. Consider James chapter 5, verse 16, the very plain instruction to confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, the Bible unequivocally says here to confess to each other. And then Sister White, of course, comes in and clarifies this a bit. But 
despite the clarification, she doesn't actually negate it. This command still stands. Even if we understand it through Ellen White, it's still valid from God. And so rather than being afraid to admit our imperfections, the Bible says the opposite. To admit those imperfections to each other for the purpose of healing. Consider, here's an illustration. Brother A is married to Sister B. They both attend church. They are both well-known, and they are liked. These are hypothetical people, okay? Brother A at home develops a problem looking at things on the internet that he, you know, shouldn't be looking at. Sister B, understandably, dislikes this very much. It begins to cause problems in their marriage. Brother A even realizes what the problem is and that he's responsible for it, but the addictive nature of all those, you know, things on the internet keeps him at it anyway. So there's a problem. The couple then comes to a prayer meeting or a study group or whatever, right, to a company of the, of the brethren. And when the group is asked for supplications, they each boldly raise their hands and confess that this is happening in their home. They ask for forgiveness from God. They ask for healing. And everyone in the meeting immediately stands up and goes to lay hands on and pray for this couple. The body of Christ in that moment acts as a vessel for the Holy Spirit who anoints the brother and the sister. They then return home. They discuss the evening they just had. They pray together. They go to sleep. Strangely, supernaturally, Brother A no longer feels that sinful need to pursue his destructive habit. Each night, as we go forward in time, that urge remains gone, and then any lingering temptation diminishes with time. The marriage begins to improve. The prayer meeting warriors, they continue to get updates about the couple. They pray for the couple. They believe that their fervent prayers avail much, as God has promised. And before long, the couple then feel strong and confident with one another, with each other, and they consider themselves and their marriage as having achieved victory over this devilish problem to the glory and honor of God. Amen, right? That's how it's supposed to work. That's the way it did work in the earliest church days. You can read historical documents about and even by the early church, which testify that their gatherings were filled with hymn singing, scripture reading, open confession, and prayer as their four main tenets of when they got together. Part of what baffled the onlooking world watching this spectacle was that this group of believers would even do something like that. It's totally unheard of to, like, walk into a room and admit that you're imperfect <laughs> and confess that you've messed up somehow. The Roman world was quick to give out punishments and quick to condemn. I mean, you can end up on, nailed to a tree for something what we would consider really, really minor. But the Christians didn't buy into that. 
The Christians believed, as the Scripture says, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and accordingly, they confessed their sins among each other, amongst each other and prayed for healing. That model, that model of openness and honesty and vulnerability amongst the brethren, that model turned the world upside down in one generation, as it says in Acts 17.6. That is a powerful model. It's a powerful model that stopped existing within the first 300 years of the church. By the time the Diocletian edict ended and Constantine became the emperor, they weren't really doing that anymore. They were actually quick to condemn each other for not enduring the persecution as well as they should have. So it got lost along the way somehow. So now I want you to think through the same scenario again with Brother A and Sister B, okay? But this time, consider what the actual reaction would probably be if one of our married couples confessed to this problem openly in this manner. This is hypothetical, so I mean, you know, the, a real-life situation might be different, but I would venture to say that among the most likely of responses would be gossip. Come on, am I wrong? The entire church would know about this within a week, and I think you know that. I think you understand that that's how it would work. Also, among the most likely of responses would be judgment. Oh, how dare he do that? Doesn't he know that's wrong? You can be sure we would all become experts on what the Bible and the spirit of prophecy say on this issue as we are preparing our arguments to denounce such behavior. And I honestly wonder if anyone would think to stop and pray for this couple. Would the format and the flow of whatever gathering it happened at prevent them from getting the prayer intervention that they need? You get it? Like, oh, we're only five minutes away from study time. We can't take a break now. <laughs> Would we choose program over people? Would we be so far outside of our comfort zones, if somebody were to stand up and say that, that we wouldn't even know how to respond? You know, my wife was a crisis interventionist for a number of years. It takes training to know how to respond to people in crisis. It doesn't actually come naturally most of the time. And so, this is kind of a big deal problem. You know, maybe the actual manifestation will be different than what I've just said, but if we cannot meet this kind of problem in a biblical way, this is a really big problem. It's a problem everywhere, right? Not just here. It's a problem across Christianity. We might be experts at all of the rules and the regulations, but the way that we deal with problems among our own people is a far cry from the early believers and the biblical standard. If we miss the boat, on something as foundationally important as how to treat believers in need, then I think we have a hard time justifying ourselves as people of the book. Now, I'm not, I don't, I'm not trying to say that we have totally missed this boat. I'm saying in the extreme, if we do not recognize this and work to counteract it, if we let it grow and fester and don't do anything about it, it can and ultimately will one day become a problem as big as I am suggesting.
So, let's seek after the Lord to figure out how to be more like the Bible, more like the early church that turned the world upside down. The second problem that I mentioned is related, of course, but it's that many people seem to actually be afraid of admitting that they're in need. I kind of get this. Did you know that Adventists are kind of a tricky bunch when it comes to need? <laughs> Let me illustrate. In 2013, I preached my prophecy series, The Story of Hope, for the first time. Which, and actually, I didn't even know this till someone pointed it out, but it's featured in your little bulletin insert today. I'm not responsible for this, but there's a little blurb about what we did up in Kern River last fall. It says there were four baptisms. There's actually been six. Well, anyway, I preached that for the very first time back in 2013. During the third weekend of the series, when I was preaching Daniel chapters 9, 7, and 8 in that order, I lost my voice. <laughs> By God's grace, I was able to croak my way through it, right? Because God is good, and he saved the day, as, as I knew he would. But the problem was obvious to anyone who came to hear me, right? I was not, did not have that same strength in my voice. And, of course, the good-hearted people came to me afterwards with every Adventist remedy under the sun for hoarseness. Nearly everyone in the room became my personal physician on that weekend, and I didn't need to even need to ask for that happy privilege. <laughs> when my voice was recovering on Sunday night, and it was sounding better, I said to the crowd, I said, thank you to everyone who gave me a remedy or a therapy or an idea for my voice this weekend, and I want to assure each and every one of you, yours is the remedy that worked. <laughs> Do you see the problem? <laughs> we have so much insight into so many things that sometimes it's actually hard for us to be of actual value in times of crisis. Ooh, what do I mean by that? Well, do you know which one of those remedies I followed? None of them. That's exactly the right answer. Not a single one of them. I maybe ate a lozenge or two, right? But none of them. I followed none of those crazy things. I mean, some of them were really crazy, and I just I didn't do any. I know my body. And even more than that, I know the Lord. I came down with a cold one day before the meeting started. And the voice loss was just an eventual symptom of that. I never once believed it was a natural sickness. I knew that the enemy was out to silence me, and I knew the Lord would not let him. And he didn't. <laughs> you know what I did need? I needed to rest. I needed to go home when I was finished and drink lots of water and rest. I did not need to spend 40 minutes talking to everyone afterwards about their remedies. Right? I needed the opposite of that. Sometimes we know so much that it's hard for us to actually be of value. I hope that makes sense. Now consider something now a little bit more serious than that. That was not really a serious thing. But here's something a bit more serious. Same problem. There is depression in this room. 
did you know that? Are we doing anything about it? Depression is another one of those things that the rest of us all have a cure for. I've known people who are cured right out of the church. Depression can certainly be treated and helped with exercise and proper sleep and nutrition and prayer. All of those things absolutely help. But to pretend that those things are a cure in and of themselves is to speak from a limited perspective. Speaking as someone who's never actually experienced it. However, I have suffered from depression. In one form or another, I suffered for eight solid years in my younger days. I was formally medicated for about half of that time. I was informally medicated for the rest of the time. And in my unhappy package of mental illness was included at various points crippling anxiety, panic attacks, insomnia, post-traumatic stress disorder, because you know I survived the September 11th terror attacks, right? So that just made the whole thing worse. Self-loathing, a tendency towards drinking, and some of the biggest regrets of my entire life. It took me learning about Jesus to break the hold that this had on me. Because nothing else worked. But even so, it still lingered on for a while afterwards in spurts. Even today in 2017, it still manifests occasionally as bouts of high anxiety kind of crushing down on me out of nowhere for no reason. Like, like an old bitter friend who just can't get enough of me. And yeah, of course, the good diet and the proper hydration and sleep and exercise keep it at bay, but it still remains from time to time. A person with depression needs to feel heard and valued and loved. He needs a listener. She needs a friend. They all need help navigating whatever the root cause of the depression is. There are many who suffer who don't even know what the root cause is. They need help even figuring that out. It takes time and effort and energy to minister to someone who suffers like this. And so perhaps some of us are afraid to ask for help because we don't get the right help when we ask. A fear of what others will say is often communicated to me. No, I can't, I can't, I can't share this at prayer meeting. I can't go to this brother. I can't share with this group. What would they say? What would they think of me? That's communicated to me quite a bit, and rightfully so. An overweight person does not need to hear that he should stop eating as much. He's already heard that a thousand times. If it was that easy, he'd already be skinny. Similarly, we don't need platitudes and remedies and judgment when we're in pain. We need love and healing and Jesus Christ when we're in pain. When I was 21 and self-destructing, you could have told me about exercising in the sun and getting eight hours of sleep all the day long, and it would not have made a single bit of difference to me because none of those things none of those things would have addressed or remedied the trauma that I suffered at 15 years old. 
And because of that unresolved trauma, I probably wouldn't even listen to your suggestions in the first place. That was not what I needed. And depression, I'm just using that because it's so common and something I know a thing or two about. But it is by no means the only problem that's represented in this room. We have struggling parents. We have struggling marriages, struggling finances, struggling professions, struggles with self-identity, struggles with self-esteem, struggles with criminal records, struggles with immigration, struggles with substance use and abuse, struggles with faith and lack thereof. These are real needs. Many of the people who used to come here but don't anymore are struggling with something. What are we doing about that? What are we doing about the quiet struggle sitting next to you right now? How can this be a place of healing if people are afraid to admit a problem? When one of our own encounters a problem, his or her first thought should be, I have to bring this to my church so they can pray for me and the situation. But how often is that our first thought? And why is that not our first thought? And what can we do to change that? So, all right, so in summary, that, that's really all I'm hoping for for the next year, that we continue what we're doing and better address the actual felt needs amongst our own people, okay? And I'm not going to bring anything else to you today. That's, that's really my entire hope. So, in summary of all of that, my assessment of this church over the past year and for the year to come is that we have addressed, or at least come to peace with, much of what was troubling us a year ago. Congratulations, church! Amen. Hallelujah! I always believed from day one that your love for one another would outweigh whatever else you feel towards one another from time to time. I always believed that, and praise God, you proved me right. But as I said earlier, I do not mean to imply that we have no more work to do. I am of the opinion, really, honestly, if we're, if we're laying it all on the table, I believe that the presidential election simply absorbed our polarizing energies and allowed us to focus them outward towards the world for a while instead of inwards towards each other. And then that process was so exhausting and gross that we all just kind of need a break from it now. <laughs> we need to like detox for a little while. But I am concerned that whatever, whenever the next hot button thing surfaces, and you know there's going to be one, you know there's going to be at some point. And whenever that bubbles to the surface, that we all still have these passions somewhere inside of us, and they're going to just come forth again. So I, I do have that concern, and I pray that we will pray about that. Now is not the time to get lazy just because we had a really good year. Now is the time to recommit to healing and recommit to agape, brotherly, and sisterly divine love. Now is the time to actively remember the good in another believer, especially when we are tempted to believe something else. Now continues to be, as always, the best time to deny self and think of someone else as better than you. Do this, and we'll live, church.
And to that end, my hope and prayer for the year ahead of us is, what we, is that we fulfill Paul's commandment in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. He says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But eat, let each one examine his own work, and then we will have rejoicing, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. So in other words, if your brother is struggling and you happen not to be at that moment, then work to restore the struggling one with gentleness. Gently. Not with judgment, not with condemnation, not even with unsolicited advice. Helping someone requires a piece of yourself. Giving of ourselves in that way lightens the load around us, right? Bear one another's burdens is the command. It lightens the load all around us and it fulfills the law of Christ. None of us are above this task, brethren, and if you think you are, you deceive yourselves, according to Paul. Each one of us is individually responsible for ourselves. No one is responsible for what you do other than you. We must bear the individual loads of our own lives. So my prayer is that we're going to join hands together and lighten those individual loads. That we can examine our ways, turn back to the Lord, and praise His name for the Christian love that He gives us freely as a gift in our hearts. Church, Are we still friends? I wasn't trying to be critical. This was supposed to be an uplifting message. Are we still friends? Okay. I would like us to do an exercise together before we dismiss for lunch and beyond. Okay? I would like us to sing our closing song together, but more united as a family in Christ than usual. Okay? So I'm going to ask you to do something a little not normal right now. Please, please humor me. I would like everyone who is able to stand up. Don't hurt yourselves, but if you can, please stand up. Okay? Now, praise the Lord, there's a lot of us here. Now, move out to the perimeter of the room and form a circle. Please. When we are all set, I'll give you a minute to figure this out, okay? And also, because there's a lot of us, you probably have to not, you know, have lots of space in between you. If you're having lots of space, please allow that to not be true, okay? When we are all set, please then hold the hands of the people next to you. And we're going to sing our closing song, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, together as a family. This is the same song that we sang together a year ago after the very first time that I came and spoke to you all about these things. And I pray that we recognize the uniqueness of this moment. This is my last thought. 
I pray that we recognize that this is probably the last time that this exact group of people will be gathered together at once. Because the probability of this exact same group, no more, no less, to be gathered again is incredibly small. So let us love one another now in case we do not meet again. Amen? Let's sing, and then we will have a prayer. Sister, may I?